0: You're listening to the Going Offsides podcast, your home for lacrosse news, stories, and everything in between. Well,
1: Coach Byrne, thank you so much for agreeing to do this. You know, ladies and gentlemen, we have a really great guest today, a really knowledgeable knowledgeable one, one that almost everybody has heard of or should have heard of if you know anything about lo- the lacrosse world. So. Thank you so much for giving us your time, and uh, we we look forward to to chopping it up with you for a little bit.
0: Yeah, you know, I I like not knowing what the questions are. So,
1: <laughs>
0: you know, that means I can really make stuff up as we get going.
1: Yeah, well, that's about fifty percent of the show. I, I sent you a couple uh, a couple talking points, but it's really you know we like to let the guests to drive the conversation. So, um, you know, you were always in consideration for or rumored to be in consideration for pretty much every head coaching job for the last 10 years. And so the first question I wanted to ask you is, you know, why Harvard and why now, even though it was really a year or two ago, but.
0: I know we're going to have to go back in the wayback machine. machine. <laughs> Fuzzy and, and, you know, kind of romantic music going on in the background. Um, you know, I mean, a lot of it, listen, as you get older, you realize how much important family is and, your connection with your kids and and not being necessarily being comfortable but also knowing when you have a really good situation and i had a great situation coaching at nerd aim with coach corrigan and you know having autonomy to you know drive the recruiting drive the defense drive our messaging out into the into the world and so concurrently i was able to coach my one of my uh boys uh, one of my children and my daughter was at uh, playing on the women's team at the same time. so you know you talk about happy wife, happy life you have happy kids, happy life, happy kids, happy wife yeah <laughs> I'm usually not that happy
2: even <laughs> when I should be
0: happy so I'm sort of happy sometimes, but everybody else seemed happy so that kind of that raised my happiness meter up a little bit and so right. um, so when you know when my kid and so that was always, you know, an obstacle to try to overcome uh, prior to and ultimately every time that I had an opportunity to leave and is that it would come back to that comfort, that happiness, that security. And so when Harvard happened, you know, some of the the things that were anchoring me in a good way, not holding me back, but anchoring right. me to, to life and family and professional happiness, you know, my, my kids had moved on. My my son, Pierre, is a high school coach down in, in Nashville. He has a regular job at Ennsworth Academy in Nashville. And my daughter was in medical school. My older son lived in the South Bend area. And so there was less, you know, kind of the pressure and the anxiety of thinking about leaving. And so when the Harvard opportunity had... along! I I had had experience in it. I was uh, one of the candidates 10 years, nine years earlier. Mm -hmm. And so I had some familiarity with campus and the process and the procedures and some of the people and because it had been the same AD at the time. So, you know, I think the combination of the sense of adventure combination, if I'm going to do it, this is a great time to do it. It's, you know, it's a little bit of a turnaround. And what better opportunity to turn, you know, the the most prestigious university on the planet and turn their, their program into a powerhouse. If you can do it here, kind of like New York City, if you can make it here, you can make Mm -hmm. it anywhere. So all of those things coming together, Nick.
1: Okay. And, and to piggyback on that, because I think what we try to do on the show is ask questions so that the, you know, being in the lacrosse industry and the coaching industry, we kind of understand how things work but the average person doesn't. So switching from Notre Dame to Harvard in terms of recruiting, you know, recruiting to the Ivy League is very different. It's much like recruiting to the NESCAC in that you're more committing to the process than you are to like an actual athletic scholarship. So can you kind of compare the two a little bit and, and let people know what it is actually like for someone to get recruited to the Ivy League?
0: You know, listen, the, the, the bottom line is it's a process at every – place from the moment that you had an attraction to a, a kid as a player and then you get to know him personally and then you get to know their families you know that's a process that's continual but the first blush of of love is you watch a guy move and compete and play and you're like all right i love the way that guy plays and then you do and then every school within us is doing an initial evaluation of their credentials as a, uh, as a student at their school. So the, you know, it, it's a, you know, the, the traditional process or the perception that you commit to a school coach kind of walks your file and hands it to some person who has a big stamp and says, admit on it, <laughs> you know, that doesn't happen. It just doesn't happen. Now, obviously some schools are easier to get into than others. Some, the credentials have to be significant higher. And so, you know, all of that has has a movable part that is somewhat mysterious to parents and kids, a little, little mysterious to coaches, Is the better the school, the less, you know, they're going to pull back the curtain and have you understand um, mm. the process. So, you know, relative to kind of Notre Dame versus Harvard is, you know, not much diff- more different of a, um, you know, process, you know, the credentials are a little bit Uh, higher from a gpa and from a uh, standardized test expectation but what what the elite schools do like harvard Mm -hmm. they're they're gonna they, they want you to continue that trajectory of excellence they don't want you like hey i committed to school xyz and next next thing you know you go on some you know victory lap down the hall and you got you know, Harvard on your sweatshirt and like, hey, hey, how you doing? I'll call you later, <laughs> everything's great. I'm going to Harvard. Is that they don't want that. They want you to be like, this is jet fuel. I'm, you know, I've done really well that it's gotten me to this point where the school is willing to, you know, say I can commit to the process of being admitted to Harvard it is, you know, we're looking for guys who are saying, you know what? I'm gonna continue to work on my writing skills. I'm gonna keep on working on my analytical skills keep on working on my verbal skills, my math, everything. Cause Just like you wouldn't want a guy to stop lifting weights and working on his footwork and a stick. You don't want that guy to go on an athletic uh, victory lap. You sure as hell don't want him to go on an intellectual. There, there's not as much of a difference in the process relative to uh, Notre Dame and Harvard, other than Harvard has, and the Ivies have the, you know, the, the an interview, typically an interview process and a, likely letters and things like that mostly is that to make sure that that young man is continued to do the things that you initially fell in love with as a player person, thinker mm-hmm. student mm-hmm. and so so yeah it remains a little bit more of a mystery but you know any sort of blemishes or mistakes that you make along the way they'll haunt you, but they'll also hurt, hurt, haunt you at other schools too. So, gotcha. so it's, it's more about maybe more the public perception or the public knowledge of the continuing evaluation that goes on. If you continue to do the things that you are supposed to do in general, you're going to be fairly safe.
1: Right. Right. Cause you know, let's say uh, I'm not going to name any schools, but let's say public university, a is a little bit easier to get into on, as a whole, you right. might get your acceptance letter. They might give you your scholarship offer and boom, as long as you don't screw up in a major way, you're good to go. Whereas Harvard, it's a continue and and other IVs, it's a continuing process as a coach. You might need to have a little bit more oversight, a hundred percent of the time than you would maybe at public school. A. so that's, that's really good insight. I know Ryan had a question for you next.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So coach, you know, you go from, you know, one elite institution to, you know, the elite of the elites, right? Um, you know, you alluded to some of those things that some of the, pro- the process is basically the same, but there are some things that you've had to adjust over time. Now, you know, we've talked about it from the recruiting standpoint. Now you've, you know, got your students there, you've got your guys. How have, you know, how have you managed the, you know, the academic rigors of that institution, you know, while, you know, like you said, you know, continuing to build that program and, and turn it into, you know, an elite program. Um, you know, I know there are probably some things that you took with you from Notre Dame, but you know, what, what are some of the things that you've kind of had to tweak a little bit, um, you know, in coming over from Notre Dame to, to Harvard,
0: you know, I, I think the thing that you have to understand or that any coach should really invest in understanding is at, at an elite school with aspirations of being an elite program, that it, it all starts with the school. There's nothing bigger than the school.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So you can you can be stubborn or you can fight against that or you can look like through the force of my will and work ethic and dedication, I'm gonna make them change for me. That, you have to let that go because it's one of the reasons why Harvard is Harvard, is, you know, athletics is an important DNA in the history of school. But in the choice between those two things, nothing is bigger than Harvard. Nothing is bigger than the undergraduate experience. Nothing is bigger than the safety and health of everybody, whether it's me, an undergrad, a dining hall worker, they all matter. And so you have to come with that sense of, all right, how you better understand that when you come here because if you come here and all of a sudden, wow, admissions is really challenging. Or, you know, we might, you know, a guy who's pre-med might have a lab that, you know, conflicts with a practice. Like you can, if, if you're just finding that out, you're going to be really frustrated and and upset. So I think before you do anything, Ryan, like you have to have a sense of that, you know, where you are, Mm-hmm. You know how to work within that. You know that there's some struggles, but with the struggles, there's some really powerful and attractive elements, too. And so, you know, making a transition from Notre Dame to Harvard, you know, that, that part wasn't different. You know, you got two really strong schools, you know, Harvard a little bit more, you know, impressive just because of the history yep. and its place in our culture, and it's, you know, the number one rated school every year, pretty much in every ranking that that comes out, is that that's kind of embedded in people's uh, minds. So there's a certain kid who's going to be attracted to Harvard versus a Notre Dame or a Duke. Yeah, there are things that a guy might be more attractive to the Dukes and Notre Dame of the world, uh, because, you know, their program's higher ranked right now, or, they you know, their sports teams are on TV every week, or I want to go to a place that's embedded and cemented in our culture. That it's going to be, I'm going to have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of alums waiting for me to help kind of guide me through my professional career. They know that there's, there's, you know, about 20% of the student body at Harvard are division one athletes. So mm-hmm. it's not like athletics is not part of the fabric and, and the DNA of, of campus, it's just it's it's more balanced. It's you're not treated like a god on Saturday and go back to your your dorm on Saturday night. Like you're, you may be a great player here at Harvard, and your roommate is inventing some app or you know splitting the splitting the atom in his spare time. So part of that is the the, the, the democratic nature mm-hmm. and the sense of community at Harvard that is a little bit different than you know being a, a place that's a big time athletic and academic school.
1: Mm-hmm. And and you just mentioned something that we, we had just talked to Terry Foy about this when we are discussing like the Ivy League's approach to this season is that you're right. You are an athlete and that is very important on campus. But unlike some other institutions where the athlete is put on this giant pedestal, there are other important parts of campus too, which are, you know, we're not gonna make certain exceptions just for one group on campus, more or less, or at least that's the public perception that's being put out there right now. Right. What has this spring kind of been like from, from the Harvard perspective? Because we, we get these little bits and pieces from these different schools, whether they may play, they might not play, there's a lot of uncertainty there. The, the conference is kind of saying like, we're not gonna make that decision for anyone. So what's it like just from the Harvard perspective?
0: You know, I think you, you touched on something that I think that I alluded to as well as, you know, r- regardless of, of where you might be, you know, somehow the virus be- became politicized mm-hmm. and, and and science got, got it. So regardless of where you might sit within the science perception, mm-hmm. then you have where you might sit within, you know, a political spectrum and then where you sit on this how this may affect me personally you know i you know if you're someone who runs a small business or you're a teenager or you're a teacher or you're someone who's a service worker you know there's so many different angles and now so many different venues with which with which people can voice their
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, various opinions it's kind of made it really hard to um, to be somebody, or be a school, or a place, or an organization. All right, this is what we believe. And and Harvard stance has been from the get-go, from from you know a year ago, has been you know the preservation of the safety and health of anybody who's connected to Harvard. And you know, on one hand, it's an unbelievably noble and heroic stance. To take, like we don't want not one person to get sick, which is both noble and you know a little foolhardy in the sense of nobody can ensure that. But regardless of that, you know Harvard has taken this stance, and so every decision from there, if if you agreed with that decision, then every other decision has seemed to have flowed. If you never agreed with that logic and that presumption, anything that happened since then has been like. A reminder of you know well you know what about ism well that's cool you know BU down the river a mile has all their students back and Mm -hmm. Harvard a mile up the river from from BU has you know a quarter of their student body back so you know it that's where they started and you know what what I told my players and my parents and my staff is that you know when you're at a place that has you know, the preeminent medical school, at least in our country and maybe the planet, the preeminent school of public health in our country or maybe on the planet is that, you know, when those deans come over and talk to the head coaches, which is what they did, you have to pay attention. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, is there, you know, incontrovertible evidence around that this is, you know, is safe and all of that, Yeah, there seems to be a consensus, but you you touched upon something. They're worried about not just my health, the dining hall worker, the student, but they're also worried about the experience that everybody's able to take part. You know, the the guy or the gal who can't do their, you know, their uh, theater performance or dance performance or going to the lab. Maybe it's a little too fair. Maybe it's a little too balanced. Maybe it's a little too, you know, trying to make equitable, for everybody, but that's what they've chosen to pursue. And as a result, you know, and I think a lot of the schools in our league, there's a, you know, there's a different perceptions within that. Um, But I think that's been Harvard's perception, which is we gotta be fair. We want safety. We don't want anyone to get sick. We can debate the rightness and wrongness of that, but Harvard has been pretty clear since to me and to anybody who's an athlete and a student, pretty clear since last, February, what their approach was going to
1: be. Right. Yeah. I, I think consistency has been key. I, I think the one thing that people, I guess, and I'm not, this is not specific to Harvard, but the Ivy League as a whole, been concerned about is that that perception of maybe that there was a false hope of maybe there will be, maybe there won't be. But It's such a fluid situation. I'm not sure that that's fair either because every, it changes daily. I mean, we have games canceled yesterday and rescheduled today. So uh, I'm not sure that that perception is fair. I don't think like, like you've alluded to, there's not, there's nothing malicious in this decision-making. Everyone's just trying to do what they think is best. And that's where the disconnect is, is what do you actually think is best?
0: and, And listen, lacrosse, you know, lacrosse, people want to see lacrosse. They want yeah. to see the teams in our <laughs> yeah. league playing. And, you know, like I want one, you know, strangely people want what they want.
2: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Would have thought.
0: And, and, and if they can order it even better, you exactly know, so, right. so, you know, yeah, I think it's still, there, there's an unclear nature around that because if you're the president uh, in in our league, you're athletics is is one of the things that's on your radar. It's not like, it's a big tenor in ACC school where, you know, they were, they were also concerned about being caught being caught in a situation where, well we supported football mm-hmm. and ba- and basketball to some level, you know, no one wants to come out and say, you know, that those things drive revenue. They might not make money, but they help offset some of the costs mm-hmm. to support other programs. And, you know, the Ivy league fortunately is not predicated on ticket sales and, and, yeah. you know, TV the, revenue or exactly. revenue, right. That allowed, that allowed the Ivy league and the Harvard's of the world to make a decision maybe based more on principle and, and student experience and student safety. And I'm, I'm not saying that the other schools didn't, but right. the motivation to, to have football and, and all the other things, which produce revenue, and then was, became a gateway for the other sports to play. And again, great for them. I wish, you know, mm-hmm. um, I wish we, you know, we were playing right now practice. We're, we're practicing with, um, you know, our players on campus and, you know, we're hopeful that something maybe positive comes out of the spring.
2: So. Exactly right. Yeah. You know,
0: there's, some co- there's some costs coming down the road. Who knows what's going to happen? Who knows what this season is, is going to be like, you know? And, you know, when I, when I said to my, my guys, I'm like, you're a student athlete at Harvard. If this is your biggest disappointment of your life and you yeah, have right. a pretty good <laughs> life.
2: Exactly right. I mean, and 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 one thing that I can just say, you know, I appreciate just from the outside looking in, obviously. Um, it, it just seems like, you know, y- you've done a great job of keeping that perspective with your guys. I mean, because at the end of the day, it's all an experience, it's all about having that perspective. And it just seems like, you know, in, in times of everything, like it being kind of a crazy situation with the unknown, it just seems like you know you're like a level grounded force for those guys and 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 i think that's probably helping their student athlete experience right
0: yeah you know you can only control what you can control you know and and you know you know like i think mental health resources and and you know leaning on your teammates all all things that that maybe you took for granted have to become you know you know the center of your of your program when you when you're dealing with the uh the uncertainty mm-hmm. in, in every element of, of their lives so you know we're, we're we're trying to have some fun with it yeah. and um but, you know we'll see what
2: happens <laughs> well and that brings me to my next question so i mean obviously you know you're
0: we'll be back after a word from our sponsor
2: we're doing things a little differently this year because obviously you know we have the uh, the, the public health issues but I know you know you're huge and you know at Notre Dame it was a huge aspect and it's a huge aspect of what you're doing at Harvard um, in terms of the student athlete experience. I mean obviously you know you know, it's more than just being a lacrosse player at Harvard or just getting your education at Harvard you're kind of combining all of that. Um, and I've seen some of the things that you do the trip to the 9/11 museum, what you guys did before um, I think it was did you scrimmage Sacred Heart last year where you took the trip into New York City? You know I know your brother's a fireman and everything like that. Um, you know, what are some of those experiences, those, those extras that, you know, you like to do within your program that you can see kind of being, you know, staples for your program moving forward? I mean, I I think, you know, while it's such a great and tremendous opportunity to be a college athlete, you know, it's one of those things that can help kind of, you know, through networking, through a bunch of different things, just really kind of broaden their horizons and see so many different things and kind of, you know, bring a lot of different things together for them.
0: You know, I I think the the thing that you know any coach who might be listening whether it's a high school coach or, or a college coach is that you're, you're usually there's usually rules or limitations or mm-hmm. prescriptions about right how, how much can you be on the field during the week so if you start with that and then you built in all right they're walking over from somewhere in the training room and the you know they're getting extra help and all that stuff like this you know, there's there's probably about four hours a day that you know in, in season that they're dedicated you know minimally to their program whether it's the travel to get to practice in the training room if you're lifting before doing film after so you know in, in my mind you know that leaves another 20 hours of the day that you know, then you back out, the uh, you know, six to eight hours of sleep that you hope that they're they're getting. And now you're somewhere between kind of 12 and, and 14. And then you have your classes and stuff like that. But there's time each day where there's an opportunity to expose them to something that that's kind of surprising. And so I've always felt that way because I've always felt that that I I should make practice to be the best part of their day. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean it can't be hard and challenging and there's some good days and some bad days and and things like that. But if you start with the culture that you're bringing, I've always felt strongly in that. And even if it meant the guy one day a week was gonna be 15 minutes late or have to leave 15 minutes early. Like if I'm running a T program well and building a culture well, that guy, is gonna be so thankful that I supported him being pre-med or engineering or whatever that I know I'm gonna I'm gonna get that 15 minute ba- back times 10. Because mm-hmm. he's gonna be so you know thankful to be able to have the license and the autonomy versus being a coach says, Yeah, you come here and study whatever you want, and then you get here and say, No, you can't take that class because mm-hmm. that's happening out
2: a lot right? of places. Yeah.
0: So it starts from you know, when you start thinking about this kind of group of a couple of hours each day that you might dedicate to a speaker or a really cool article, or if you're traveling like we did when we went down to to New York, that was our first official, Ivy, my first official Ivy League practice, and we weren't even in Cambridge. Yeah. Because I, you know, because I want them to, to think about the world outside of themselves. I want them to think about a sense of appreciation for being at a place like Harvard. Why would you come to Harvard and not take the classes that you want to take with the, some of the professors, not the guys who wrote the textbook, the guy who taught the guy who wrote the textbook? Mm-hmm. You know, that's the guy who's, who's you know the Nobel laureates in a variety of different topics at Harvard. Like, why wouldn't you take that guy or that gal's class? Why would mm-hmm. you come here and not major in what you want to major in because, we'll help you get to Wall Street and law school or whatever, medical school, whatever you want. We're gonna advocate because if you can do well enough as a Harvard student athlete, guess what? You're gonna get the job off. Yeah, You're gonna yeah. get into med school. You're gonna get into law school, right? All those things, those attributes about you. And so that's how I look at it, Ryan. I'm like, cause I feel this, I feel this to my marrow that if if I recruit the right people, Skills, you know, uh, appreciation for Harvard, you know, pride in where they came from and and wanting to honor the people that helped them get to a place like Harvard. If I do that part well, and I give my guys the license to pursue what they want at Harvard when they're not with me, and they can be good citizens out in the Mm -hmm. Harvard community, when they walk across the bridge, Anderson Bridge, which is the bridge that connects mm-hmm. the yep. athletic campus at Harvard with Harvard Square. Yep. they come over Anderson Bridge and they crest the top of that bridge, they're happy about every element of their experience at Harvard, and that guy comes to practice, he's ready to work his tail off. Mm-hmm. He's appreciative, he's prideful, he wants to find a way to contribute to our culture and our team. So I think, and then when he leaves practice, even if he got yelled at, even if he, you know, didn't go great, he missed a shot, missed a pass, walk him back over the bridge with his buddies and he's like, I'm a student athlete at Harvard. Yeah. How lucky am I?
2: <laughs> exactly and right, so those, yeah. those
0: Those two things balance each other. It drives you being a good student and a good citizen and it drives you to be a really good teammate and wanting to find ways to contribute to your team's success and so, you know, I know I, I rambled a little no. bit, but that that travel, you know, you're looking for tap into the Harvard network. There's a basically a thousand living Harvard men's lacrosse mm-hmm. and I I have a list, and I know what each of them does, where they live, where they work, so I can, you know, I can constantly put our guys together with them. So and they and my guys know I'm doing that on their behalf. And one, and all I ask from them in return is good person, good as good good citizen, work hard as a person, teammate, and thinker.
2: So what more can you ask, it, right?
0: Yeah, well, it makes it easy to figure out going to 9/11 Museum and have my brother's firehouse cook for our team, because without me having to say anything, that's real teamwork. When you're yeah. a, a fire environment cooked for my team and our whole staff. Mm-hmm. And in the middle of us eating together, they had to go out on a run. You know, so everything's dropped. You got to dress in 15 seconds, hop on the rig. And my God, like, I don't have to like get up and say, you know, that's real teamwork. Did you see how they yeah. all put their boots on? They helped yeah. each other get on the truck. Like, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, saying less is more.
2: Exactly right.
1: Do you you think that in a year like this or the last year and a half that, you know, it's one thing in the past, some, some coaches have taken this and made a, made it a priority, you know, the off the field stuff more or less, because in the past, if, if things aren't going well with the team, a good practice or a good scrimmage can kind of handle some of those things. It can kind of, you know, ease ease the burden and solve a few issues. Do you think that this has this, this virus and and coaching and doing a lot of online stuff and small group stuff has kind of accelerated or forced coaches to focus on those other things outside of just being physically with the players at practice?
0: Well, I mean, I I think if you're, if you're, listen, this was an opportunity. There's no case study. I said this, we had a, uh, a speaker. um, I do a speaker about every two weeks. Uh, I do a Forums. and you know there's no and i was say case study you can't go to the harvard business school and find a case study and says you know how do you deal with this mm-hmm. but there's examples all around you know we had our team read a book called endurance which is about ernest shackleton mm-hmm. he, had, he was an explorer in the early 20th century who um tried to traverse antarctica and the whole thing it never got started his boat got stuck in the ice and they had to get into the small rowboats and nightmare, <laughs> nightmare it went from a you know a trip of expedition to a trip, trip of survival. But, but there's no, there's no examples out there of how to do, do this. And so if, if you were someone who, you know, felt like you had a great culture when everyone was physically together, yes, your culture is portable, but can it be portable for a year, you know, a year and a half and stuff like that. So, and if you didn't have a strong culture, yeah, this forced you to maybe do things differently than you did in the past, and um, you know, trying to find this balance between control and accountability and individual initiative and peer-to-peer inspiration, confrontation. That's not a linear solution. So you, mm-hmm. the cool thing is that for me, I felt like this was a great time to experiment with different things and i had spent my whole career in in coaching so i was able to bring some different things from from my corporate life as well and so there's no there's no perfect you know recipe or how to do all this Mm -hmm. but being open to doing things in different ways you know so like you can have a calendar of like hey we're doing this and this every day but you still have to be open to finding some really cool video or mm-hmm. sharing a documentary or reading a book as a team or some funny thing comes across your social media feed and you share that, like being open to delivering the messages of the, of the principles of your program it's, it's not as easy as writing a script, I think. It, 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 <laughs> I
1: would love to be sitting in my dorm room and get a, a, a what, what Coach Byrne considers a funny social media <laughs> post. But, <laughs> I can only imagine the kind of stuff that would pop up. Um, but,
0: I, but I do like sharing things that just kind of... Yeah, you know,
1: build community up. and, and yeah, yeah, that you can relate to. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so coach, you're considered by many to be a bit of a defensive guru or defensive whisperer, if you will. So we had some pretty specific questions we wanted to ask you that are a little bit more tactical and, uh, get your, I know that there's, well, there may, you might think that there's a wrong answer to these questions, but, uh, let's pretend that there isn't. So the the first one, and I've seen this done so many different ways this year alone, because of the shot clock, how, what is your approach to, to defending the invert? And what, to piggyback off of that, what is your approach to defending uh, a hung up defender with the, with the ball carrier at at X?
0: Um, I, you know, relative to the invert, I don't teach anything different. I teach one defense Mm -hmm. and, you know, I really don't care if, if, you know, our one-legged face-off guy is guarding, you know, Chris Gray behind (laughs) or like, I, I just think the more, Defenses you coach, the more mediocre you are at defense.
2: (laughs) Fair enough. But
0: I think it's a little bit of the influence of football, like you know, a lot of uh, coaches of a lot of sports became acolytes of, you know, you know, genius football coaches, and and you know, having you know seventy three terms for for Mm -hmm. for this, and and I, I think I think a lot of that is driven by. I want I want the outside world to be more so impressed by the complexity of what, what you might be doing versus simple is usually pretty effective, you know. Yeah. And and you really don't you know and you don't have as much time as you think you have. And then I really you have even less time than 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 you have. And so try to come good at one defense, but then with while you teach one defense or one style of defense, what you end up really teaching is the nuance of how you, you know, guard and how you read help and how you stand when you're in the different perimeter roles Mm -hmm. and things Mm -hmm. like that. That becomes like the hard thing to discern. So when when I was coaching at Notre Dame, like, you know, people would say, oh, they're fake sliding. Like, I hate fake sliding. I think fake sliding is one of the dumbest, you know, <laughs> you know it works on bad players.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so if I loved a fake slide, I'd be like, shut the hell up.
2: That like <laughs> <that>?
0: but, <laughs> but what you're doing is trying to teach the footwork where you're evaluating yeah. whether you have to slide. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes when they do it wrong, they get their weight shifted on one foot or another and it looks like a fake slide. So more often than not, it was just bad technique than a mm-hmm. fake slide and so so teaching one defense um regardless of whether it's an invert or your face-off guys matched up against the best offensive player you know and i use this example a lot because will corrigan coaches with me when, when, when i was coaching in her we played uh, uh albany in lyle thompson's last game and will Carrigan got got switched they did big little and he got switched onto lyle thompson and <laughs> It's so funny, like you don't watch a lot of TV games. You know, like when you're coaching, you never watch TV games. Right. Like yeah. you're always just watching the game film. But someone sent it to me and you know, listen, it happened to be, you know, well, I won't tell you who it was, but I'm like, oh my God, they're gonna be switching onto this, and then will proceed will go 15 seconds and ultimately got slid to. Like, oh, they're gonna they're gonna go early. And I'm like, no. No, if he gets beat, then you go early. If he doesn't yeah. get beat, then you you go late, you know, and so so you you basically teach signs of the way people are, you know, signs of guys who are about signs, body language, stick positioning of, of guys who are about to get beat. Get beat I yeah. think that is that's a that's an underappreciated teaching thing because you want your slide guys and your perimeter guys to to uh, teach that. So I don't I don't t- like a lot of teams teach the uh, you know, you slide from the mirror guy. And 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 hedge down the mm-hmm. hedge down the alleys, which you know it works. Maryland, I think, you know, was one of the first teams to do it that way. And I think Maryland has a great defensive culture. Um, but a lot of teams do it not very well. So <laughs> so, uh, so rounding
1: rounding back, if, if you do have a if you have a defender hung up, do you ever send like does Jerry Byrne ever send the goalie, or are you no. are you a staunch yeah you no, you don't do. No. Yeah, I'm
0: not. I'm not going to tell you how we do it, but
2: <laughs>
0: I I think if you I think if you went back to watch 13 years mm-hmm. of Notre Dame defense, you wouldn't be able to find one person getting hung.
2: Ever. true. It's true. That's fair.
0: So so some of it has to do with pipe positioning. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you. I'll tell you how people get hung. Usually. It's from a corner dodge or a wing dodge. Right. And um, the defenseman's on the near pipe. And then depending on the team, how much he's supposed to hedge or fake slide. And, and then, and then the attackman drifts him or fades him across X. And then that guy, he doesn't want Stuck to chase in him no behind. no man's land, yeah. And that, there you have it. Yep. So there's a little hint there. <laughs> so, <laughs> there you go. You know,
1: the, the key um, to not to, to playing the, the hang up is don't get hung up.
0: I, I didn't care about matchups. And like, I, you know, if you talk to any of the guys that I coach, I don't, I, I don't tell guys who they're guarding until after the star spangled banner. Gotcha. So, so you don't go into a game thinking, oh, it's me and Ryan. Yeah. You know Everybody's going to be watching us, you know, yeah. is that if you don't care who's guarding who, then you really don't care, you know you know, getting hung.
1: Okay, Ryan. So I think so- I'm in
0: the minority. I, I haven't seen this much hanging since a Clint Eastwood movie.
2: You're right. Did, did well, you catch I, the I, game I,
1: earlier today? Yeah. I mean, I Chris, Chris Gray knows how to hang people up. That's for sure. And well, so is Michael Sowers and they love to just sit yeah. back there and and wait. And I I mean, I know Kenny Brochart pretty well and he had a pretty good game plan for that today. But uh, you know, ultimately. You don't win any faceoffs. You can't win the game.
2: Well, and it's you're not just. It's not just at the college level. You're seeing it at the high school level. I mean, there are some kids that are putting up astronomical numbers because they just they can they they get kids hung up. I mean, it's just you go out to the East End of Long Island, and that's all you're going to see. <laughs> you get you know.
0: You, yes, you could be good. You're getting people hung, Nick. Like based on your yeah. drift play, yeah. and Chris Gray and Michael Sowers are both, you know, two-handed guys, mm-hmm. which. Allows them to play the drift follow game pretty well off of that kind of wing and corner dodge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh but what you don't see, like a lot of times when they're talking about everyone staring at the ball, it's it's like it's like, you know, a steel cage match in front of the goal. Oh, yeah. yeah. Of interfering oh, chaos. That is going on the ref, The refs are almost staring at the ball too. Like yeah. the moving picks that are going on and you know, so yeah, I on one hand, you're like, you know, if that's 60 seconds, they're probably gonna get a good shot. I don't know why you wouldn't force the guy to pick a side. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't know why you would let the guy sit there and with no ball pressure, because you know at some point someone's gonna get picked off and they're not calling moving picks. Fair enough. Right? There's been like if there's been in those TV games, maybe 30 hang-ups, I bet you there's 10 goals.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's
0: and, and 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 uh and some pretty good feeds and saves maybe Absolutely. probably less than five or six like nuggets or turnovers and yep. stuff like that because yeah, when you're so looking cute. away you don't know where the ball's coming you see yeah. you know like the stick skills of the offensive guys are too good yeah, yeah it makes it
1: really tough to play off ball i don't know
0: why i don't know why you consider to do that continue to do that but i don't know <laughs> everybody's got their own way
1: well, Ryan's got a question yeah, for you about the defense. It, well,
2: I'm going to go to it first because this was – I had somebody ask me, and I'm, I think he's already asked you the question, but for whatever reason, he wants me to ask you this again. What's your philosophy, cross-check hold or V-hold?
0: Man, if you don't know the answer to that question, you have to – I do,
2: I do, I do, I do, I do, I do, but people want to hear it. So I'll, I'll send you
0: guys a, a picture. I did a clinic this, this weekend with uh, youth kids. Mm-hmm. And I'm in a pretty damn good V-hold stand, so I was demonstrating yep. to these other kids. They're were, they were probably all looking at me, thinking, "Cross-check hold, coach. Cross-check holds." So, <laughs> I had to uh, hold up to a point, you know, up to mm-hmm. probably about you know four or five steps from GLE. I just think, mm-hmm. why, why would you make it easier for a guy to run the orc on you? Exactly.
2: Why would you right. allow your
0: body to be a screen for a goalie? Why would you allow, have allow a guy to have his hands in his eyes on the island? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know the the you know Chris Gray rockered some guy into oblivion the other day. Yeah. <laughs> Holy. you know, brought a stick over late. You know, brought brought a stick over late. So I'd rather that guy run the arc through you. I think the stick are all kind of barometers of a guy about to get beat, and mm-hmm. um, and I think that's good for indicator of how much help you need to provide it yeah. also is an indicator of whether a guy's going to run the arc or question mark or inside roll. I, I i care more about the other five guys than i do exactly really right about the guy on the ball and i think the the, the other five guys are looking for indicators of you know you doing stuff right and you doing something wrong watching your footwork watching your elbows watching your jersey all that stuff or a guy about to get beat or not get beat I like the disruptive, you know, so many attackmen are so talented on uh, into your body and step away. You know, mm-hmm. when, when you're cross check, hold, and pinned, the head of your stick and your shaft are not part of the disruption. And now the guy steps away, re dodges you, steps away, skips, step, you know. If you wanted to go, go watch and see how many, how many, um, Chris Gray and Michael Sowers have running away from the goal with no ball pressure. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, it's like Asher Nolting today. Like you and need skipping, to, you need to pressure skipping, the ball,
0: skipping lever feeding into the yep. crease. It's mm-hmm. it's an epidemic.
2: Yep. It's amazing. Get your stick in hands. People don't, people don't appreciate that. Yeah.
0: You know, but you also have to be okay with not having your ego tied up and like, Oh, they don't slide to me. I'm really good. on the number one defense. Everybody gets slow too. Yep. Everybody. So, so if you take that part out of it and just like I gotta, I gotta guard this guy for five seconds. And if I can guard him for five, maybe I can get to six, seven, eight. Yep. And if you got five guys who are ready to snap into action.
1: Very well put. I feel a lot smarter already. I, it, it's one thing. Well, coach, what you do so well is it's one thing to know the right answer. It's another reason to, it's another thing to know why. And so it's, it's about teaching people the why of why we're doing these things. It, cause it's so easy to just see like, Oh yeah, we do this because this is how it's supposed to be done. Like that's what everyone knows, <laughs> but like to actually like tell. And I think that's what kids these days need a little bit more of is they always want to know why we're doing whatever you got to teach, teach the why you got to so, teach the why. I mean, it. it's, and it's a valid point because if you teach them why they have a better understanding of the whole thing and then they're more bought into it as opposed to just because I said, so that doesn't really work anymore.
0: No, you, you, you touched on like, basically a fundamental thing of how I coach, I think, you know, you can fight this generation needing that explanation, or you can use it as a tool. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, the way I present it is here's the benefit of doing it right. And what we gain, what your five teammates gain, and here's the cost of doing it wrong. And nobody wants to do anything to hurt their team.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So
0: every and and whenever we do like film, we'll we'll juxtapose right versus wrong, so that they can see. You know, when your head of your stick was in that guy's glove with ball pressure, you did it so well. They had two open guys. They had a skip open, and they had a crease guy open. But because his on that bounce, his stick was being disruptive on the guy's glove. He had to drop his other hand off of it. Versus. The guy who's trying, who's driving out, trying to get his cross check hold on a guy, and now Michael Sowers is bouncing or Chris Gray is bouncing, and he's like, crease lever goal, mm-hmm. bounce skip step down goal.
2: Or it just gets pushed. So you just dodge. you
0: juxtapose these two things, and it just, and then it makes it really easy when you're coaching that. I'm like, yeah, don't do that. You did that wrong. Mm-hmm. That was a cost. So, so yeah, the why is 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 really important. And it's them understanding how this contributes to really good team defense. That you're part of a group. You're not on some island and, you know, it's mano a mano, you against the other guy. No, you're, it's, it's six people.
1: And then, Ryan, you had one more uh, tactical question, I think, about man down defense. <laughs>
2: Yeah. So, I mean, you know, coach, and I know, um, you know, we've been keeping you, but this is such great stuff. I mean, I I love having the opportunity to chat with you about this stuff. I mean, what are your thoughts? I mean, I know you guys might run something a little bit different, but you know, four man or five man on, on man down, what are are your Uh, thoughts on that?
0: You know, I think, I think a lot of that stems from, you know, how's your goalie? You know, Um, I I like really vanilla defense and six on six but I like really kind of saucy, (laughs) disruptive on man down, Um, you know, but even that that's driven by, um, you know, Do you have guys, good nugget guys. Do you have guys who have a sense of when they can jump or, you know, when they can jump and get pressure and steal five seconds, you have really do that. You can be really good on defense. And so for, for, Mm -hmm not my whole time, but for the predominance of time, you know, probably my first 10 years at Notre Dame, we were absurd. We had good goalies, but we also had kid Andrew Irving, who was an absurd nugget guy. He was a five foot yeah. LSM number, the yep. original, original number 50. Um, yep. Absurd nugget guy. Eddie Glazner was real up there. John Sexton was unbelievable up there. Like you're, you're, you need really good top guys. Because if yep. you want to be four man, Ryan, against a three three for as long as you can be, yep. you need guys who have great footwork and who and and what I say who can read feet yeah. or read body yep. language. What's a guy doing? Yep. You know, and so when you have really good guys at the top of your man down, um, you can really do some things. And if you have a goalie yeah. too, and and my whole concept on man down was, let's give up one really good shot. Yeah. Yeah, obviously if you don't give them any, that's that's great. But yeah, like make it really hard. Make yeah. it really hard to do it. And so um so four man and five man, four man into five man. Yep. You know. Um I, I, I was never really great at kind of like shutting guys off and doing things like that. But we 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 had some years where we were really good in the nugget world, particularly against teams that are running plays and
2: Yeah. Oh man. Jumping
0: guys and, and stuff like that. So a little bit of both, Brian. And
1: to your point, and this is probably more directed towards youth and high school coaches, but if you run into a team that runs plays, if you can dial up the pressure on, on a man down, you can really be disruptive because as soon as that first pass doesn't go the direction it's supposed to go, those kids start to lose it and they've lost all advantage from being man up. So if you run into a team that does do plays like that on man up, oh,
0: I, oh. If, I, if I was back coaching a high school team, I'd be.
1: <laughs> oh, we send pressure constantly. We we jump as yeah. many pass, especially if we can dictate the direction that the ball is going to go, then we just start jumping a little bit faster and faster and faster until something good happens.
0: Your your defensive culture has to be really strong to have a really discipline, Don't get a lot of penalties. Mm-hmm things. And, and that was the thing, Ryan, like we probably average two penalties.
2: Yeah. Well, you I mean, know. and that just, that so, just comes down with the, 30, you know, yeah. And that, just, penalties a year. and that just comes from the identity that you build within your defense. I mean, and a lot of the stuff that I've kind of, you know, and just, haven't watched some of the stuff. And thankfully too, I mean, you're one of the first guys and the programs you've been at one of the first programs that actually have put this stuff on YouTube for people to see, like you haven't been selfish in the sense that, you know, you've been willing to share some of this skill development type stuff. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff that you're talking about, you know, you, you spend a tremendous amount of time in practice developing these skills and then transition it over to when you actually, you know, put it in place during, you know, your, your six on six set, uh, or your man down set in practice and then on game day.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, there were entire weeks where most of my practice plans were for, were drills from the ND YouTube channel. <laughs> so, I mean.
0: Well, now, now it's, now it's from the Harvard channel.
1: Exactly. Yeah, exactly. HLX experience. There you go. That's right. um, coach, I had one more question for you because I was talking to somebody about this the other day. We we're talking about T99 and I couldn't for the life of me remember, you had mentioned this in, in previously in an article or something. How the heck does somebody that grew up on Long Island and, and, and played lacrosse in New York and then coached at Notre Dame for a long time? One of
2: Levittown's favorite sons.
1: How the heck did you end up LVT, running a, baby. a that's a it, premier baby. recruiting event in Texas?
0: Um, so, that's, that's a good question. So, you know, my, my, uh, my uh, I, girl I was dating uh, when I was in uh, getting my MBA at Notre Dame, um, we ended up, you know, continuing to date and with a couple of timeouts here and there, <laughs> in case my wife listens to this. Um, but then uh, I was working in I was working in New York, and she was in medical school in Texas. So um, she, uh, I joke with my kids. She, she put she she put the original ten man ride on me. That's the first. And I moved thing. to Houston. I oh, moved man. to Houston. I moved to Houston, to ten, three down pressure. It was unbelievable. So, <laughs> so I moved to we lived together in in Houston and um you know I played uh down there and then we moved and then um when I got back into coaching I you know I was like I got some good relationships down there, top two oh five was huge. Yep. It wasn't there wasn't another regional event and texas lacrosse was kind of blowing up and so um i used uh started doing it in houston and then we did it in the woodlands which is about 45 minutes yep. an hour outside houston and then went to
2: dallas that's the it first it's the first event i ever recruited at yeah that's we had, it,
0: we had yeah. A time down there i was yeah, gonna sure say coach,
1: <laughs> coach colin always tells me you know he's like if there's one event you should try and go coach. that's the one man yeah, that's, that's the one he's
2: like jack sandler Ooh, I'm not oh, sure if you guys man. know God Jack. Rest you know, Jack. God rest his soul, man.
0: God rest Jack. So Jack and Jack Sandler and Ryan Welner were my two, you know, my left mm-hmm. hand, yep. my left hand and right hand men down there. So yeah, we had and Brendan Dawson was coaching at uh, Aurora or Salisbury yeah. at that time. So I, yeah. I had all these young guys. All I like hanging out of with the young guys to keep you young.
2: <laughs> yeah, they tell you great stories too. All
1: right, oh, Coach. Well, I'll leave you with one final question. Uh, kind of a quick hitter. If you could offer a young aspiring, maybe a younger assistant coach at the college level, one piece of advice, what would it be?
0: one piece of advice is, you know, there is no small enough job for you to do at anything that you're doing. Meaning if you get on the staff for an event, come early, stay late, ask questions, contribute to the excellence of an event. If you're a, if you're on the staff, you're a volunteer or an ops person, like, like you're taking in all this, this knowledge. It's, you know, it's like Brando said, there's no such thing as a small role, just small actors. Mm-hmm. And so you know, I think, you know, and that's what I'm looking for. You know, you know Neil Hutchinson, who's my head assistant here at Harvard. I, I didn't really know him that well. And I usually made up my business to know a lot of the young guys. Cause I was always trying to play basketball the whole yep. time I'm sitting in a chair recruiting. I was thinking about the pickup basketball. That's it. It that was going to happen. So I would always be talking to the young guys. I'm like, you play hoop, you play hoop. And I felt that was like a great way to meet maybe guys who I would coach with down, down the road. And so when I was, you know, when we were looking for somebody at nerd aim, you know, Neil Hutchinson was an easy pick. He had an unbelievable reputation hardworking, diligent, curious, prideful, you know, uh, confident, but with, you know, humility around, you know, he had done a little bit of everything, you know? And so I think those guys, you're going to find yourself moving up, moving up the ladder pretty quickly if if your aspiration is to continue to move up up there, but as an assistant coach, you know, and you're already on a staff is, you know, know your role and be really really good at it and then because I think a lot of guys get caught up in oh I got to add this skill I got to add this skill guess what if you're run uh, if you're really good at something you'll always have a job
2: <laughs>
0: so I, th- I think uh, I think guys worry about their kind of resumes and all of that stuff instead of you know I better be really really good at least one thing
1: yeah well I... because
0: every staff is going to have somebody who's That's their thing, right? Yeah. Not that being a generalist is bad, but pick one thing and be great at it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think that's also part of guys trying to move up too quickly. They try to expand, you know, push themselves outwards in all these different directions instead of just being known for that one thing. Cause no one's going to know you as an average graphics guy or an average face-off coach. But if you're a really great at anything, like you said, that's what people are going to look for you for. So I I think that's really, really sound advice for any young. I mean, Ryan's been a coach for, for a while. I've been a coach. We we're both high school, middle school teachers at the moment, but that is honestly great advice to anybody that's Mm -hmm. listening because, you know, if you try to move up too fast or if you try to think you're bigger than your position, like things aren't going to go well. I mean, I started off as an high school coach and then an ops guy, and then a film coordinator, before I got my first NAI head coaching job, Ryan, you were a D three grad assistant in Alabama, right?
2: I lived in Arkansas, then I moved <laughs> back to uh, then I moved back to New York, where I was a part time assistant and worked for a water company for four years yep. to, before I got my first head coaching job, and then I had to move down to Tennessee. It's it, you know, listen at the end of the day too it's all part of our story. And I think that always kind of gets lost into it. And, but you said it perfectly. It's like, you know, there's never any easy part. You got to be willing to put in the work. And if you're not, you're not going to get to where you want to be. Yeah. There's
1: no easy road to being a college head coach. That that's for sure. So unless you have incredible pedigree and you happen to play at Harvard and we're an all American or something like that. So that doesn't hurt for anyone (laughs) listening, but all right, coach, we'll, we'll let you get going. It's time for dinner anyway. Right. Thank you.
2: Coach, you're the best. Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: If you enjoyed the
0: show, be sure to subscribe, give us a review, and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Going Off Sides.